Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. God's been answering my prayer. Uh, well, uh, I'm glad you made it here. Uh, thank you for uh, making it this morning. How many of you were here last week? Okay, many of you were here last week. Uh, Pastor Ken spoke, and uh, I just want to thank Pastor Ken for that amazing word on miracles. And uh, we're so blessed. We're blessed with uh, an incredible teaching team. He is our founding pastor. So thank you. I don't know where Pastor Ken went, but thank you, Pastor Ken, for that message. Uh, So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're in our kind of Acts Holy Spirit series. And uh, if you give me to like 3 o'clock today, kidding. Uh, If you just give me, wow, that was brutal. That was a joke, guys. That was a joke. Um, if you give me about, maybe, I'm going to try my best to get this message in about 35, 35 minutes. Um, but we're going to get to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to talk about um, the Holy Spirit's role in our life. And uh, if we can begin in verse, verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, if you're not familiar with, with the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 1, Jesus bodily comes back from the dead. He appears to his disciples over a 40-day span. And uh, he's talking about the kingdom, and he's hanging with the disciples, and then he ascends. We, I think we talked about this about four weeks ago. He ascends to um, uh, his throne. So Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus is now enthroned over the cosmos. Can I get an amen? And, uh, and then uh, he gives instructions to his disciples to uh, go to the upper room and pray and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, and it says, When the day, Dr. Luke is writing, when the day of Pentecost, everyone say Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I just want to... I want to quickly talk about Pentecost. Pentecost was an agrarian festival. Uh, any farmers here? Okay. I, I used to be a farmer. I used to buck hay. I'm, I'm totally serious. When I was seven years old, I went to my grandfather's ranch, so I totally know what far, farming is all about. Can I get an amen? Uh, I worked on my, my, John, my, my John Deere, my, father, my grandfather's John Deere tractor. I used to milk cows. Do you know you can milk a cat? Anyways, let's move on. All right. Just want to make sure you guys are awake this morning. Uh, my sister said that was so weird. No, you're weird. All right. Um, the day of, so Pentecost is an agrarian festival. And so in this ancient setting, farmers uh, would take their first fruits as a sign of gratitude and they would present it to uh, God at the temple. Uh, in the rabbinic period, uh, Pentecost was associated with uh, Moses going up to Mount Sinai and receiving the law from God and then coming back down. So uh, Pentecost uh, is 50 days after uh, the Passover, and they kind of book in this whole dominant theme of Exodus and freedom from slavery. And so it says, when the day of Pentecost, everyone say Pentecost. So the day of Pentecost had fully arrived. Could you turn to your neighbor and say Arrived. So it fully arrived. So what are we talking about? We're talking about time. This is what we're talking about. In other words, we're talking about Christian eschatology. And Christian eschatology, um, just go with me. It's really simple. Christian eschatology is God's future world arriving. And so we have this arrival. Let me just say something really quick. Time is going somewhere. Uh, In other words, uh, history has an ultimate sense of purpose. Right? God is overseeing the cosmos and moving our lives 
and uh, America and uh, the history of the world to its intended goal. And so we have this arrival theme that Luke tells us about, which highlights this this dramatic fulfillment of all the promises that we find in the story of Israel. And you can find this in the Old Testament. So think about um, uh, all the promises of God in the Old Testament being telescoped together. You find in Ezekiel 37, I'm going to throw out scriptures, uh, Ezekiel 41 through 43, a lot of different scriptures. The spirit passage in uh, Jeremiah 31 and Joel chapter 2, all of them kind of telescoping, like all coming together. And God's future world is now arriving on the day of Pentecost. Um, this is one of the reasons why I like, and we're going back to the whole subject of time, one of the reasons why I like roller coasters. How many of you like roller coasters? Coasters, right? You go to Disneyland and you like to, you know, you like to get sick and you get a little dizzy. But what I particularly like about roller coasters is that it has an end. Can I get an amen? Right? You, there's a destination. Um, what I don't like about, have you, have you been to Disneyland? You've been to, is it the Dumbo ride? Like you, they go up in the air and you just like do circles, right? You're just doing this and you just see people like, oh, hey, you again. Come back. Oh, hey, you again, right? Oh, hey, you again. It's like this circle of meaninglessness, Right? It's like time is not going anywhere, and you're really not doing anything with your life. That's why I like roller coasters over circle rides. Can I get an amen? This is kind of, again, this is linked with the idea of Christian eschatology. God is moving history to its intended goal. And on this day of Pentecost, all the promises that we find in Israel's story comes to this dramatic, climactic moment. And now they have arrived And all of the disciples were together in one place. And then we come to verse 2. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire. Everyone would say fire. I, I get it. I get it. People get freaked out about this passage. A lot of friends who would argue with me in my 20s about this passage. Unfortunately, Christians have been divided about this subject of tongues and fire and smoke and glory, all that. And we're going to talk about that next week. Please bring as many friends as possible because I'm going to be as controversial as I can possibly be next week. Can I get an amen? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go at it, okay? Um, this week, I just want to give you like a, maybe a 30,000-foot like perspective um, on what's, what's going on at Pentecost so we have this divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, as Luke continues, and rested on each of them. Verse 4, and they were all filled. Could you say all filled? Turn to your neighbor and say all filled. And so they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, some of you, you're like, you're squirming. You're like, oh, my God, are we going to, like, do some hyper-spiritual thing today? I promise we're not. We're not going to bring out the shofar, Tracy. Okay, can I get an amen to that? Verse 5 continues, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are you not all these uh, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and um, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Um, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, he continues, both Jews and, and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Next week, we'll focus on that question. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. And they've been mocking ever since. So what's going on with this passage? We got fire. How many like fire? Don't raise your hand, okay? Um, People do get weird about this. We're not crazy here. I'm not going to bring out any snakes. I'm going to have you drink poison or anything like that. But when we, usually when we take a look at Acts chapter 2, we get, we get weird about it. And uh, I believe Christians are supposed to be, yes, spiritual, but also not crazy. Can you get any man to that? Um, we're, and unfortunately, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we, I think we caricature it. We twist it out of shape, and we focus on the pyrotechnics of Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is not Coachella, right? This isn't Beyonce. This, there's no fire, right? Or if how many are in your 40s and 50s? This is not the 80s. This isn't Metallica. Fire's not all over the stage. You know, the Sandman's not being played. Can I get an amen to that? So what is going on? We got fire. We got smoke. We got... We, got, we actually find in Acts chapter 4 kind of a similar experience happens with the disciples. And the place, the room that they were in shakes. What is going on? Is this just a bizarre event that has happened in the world of space and time that kind of proves that God is all-powerful? No, that's not what this story is about. In fact, Luke, as he writes Acts, is telling us a story about a temple. And what you find, and you go to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19, you can find this in Kings and Chronicles, you can find this in Isaiah chapter 6, is when God's presence fills a temple, what is associated with God's presence? Fire and smoke. Isaiah, he sees a vision. Seraphim are all, all over the place. There's glory everywhere. And the place that he was in, the temple, shakes So what Luke is telling us as the disciples are waiting and Pentecost has fully come. Pentecost has fully come. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. Luke is saying God is now flooding creation with his very presence. Um, In other words, we usually think of ourselves, is it okay to just kind of talk this morning? Um, You have no choice. I'm going to talk no matter what. I'm a talker. Um, we usually think of ourselves as Episcopalian or Pentecostal or Charismatic or, I don't know, Methodist or, you know, I'm a part of the Wesleyan tradition or I'm neo-reformed or we have all these different labels when it comes to Christians. In fact, if we really read Acts chapter 2 uh, and we see this story as God flooding the temple, we should see ourselves as little temples. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and throughout his correspondence to the church in Corinth that we are temples where God wants to fill us with his presence. So the day has fully come. Pentecost has fully come. What does that mean? Well, the future world has arrived, and the age that we now live in is the age of Jesus and the Spirit. It's not the age of Kanye and rap God status, Eminem. Okay, this is not the age of Elon Musk and Teslas and Apple and Netflix. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, this is not the age of technology. This is not the age of laissez-faire economics or Western-style democracy. Just so you know, we are living in the age of Jesus and the Spirit. 
So the, and this is, we have to acquire a Christian mind, and we have to think about what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to see the cosmos, because of Jesus and the Spirit, is now under new management, is under a new power. Can I get an amen to that? And so this Pentecost moment has fully come. God is now filling his temple with himself. We are little temples. If you don't know anything about temples in the far ancient Near East, temples were heaven-earth constructs. In other words, heaven and earth were seen to overlap or collide or intersect within the temple. And temples were considered like little little or microcosmos that depicted um, the world, the universe itself. And so God now is flooding the temple of his people. His people are now little temples. And God is remaking um, what it means to be human and what it means to follow God in this new age of Jesus and the Spirit. So we live not under the oppression of bullies and tyrants and whatever you think about the president or whatever. We live under the rule of King Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is important because in this text what we find is that everyone, everyone say everyone, Everyone that was in that upper room was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this is remarkable because in the age of old creation, under the law, there were only a few people that were filled with the Holy Spirit, the king, priest, prophet. What we have here is that Jesus is king, and this might sound a little bit oxymoronic, but Jesus is king, democratizes the Spirit. So it's not just James and John and Peter right, who uh, get filled with the Spirit and they preach wonderful message, messages and they're able to be who God's called them to be because they have the Spirit. No, God's Spirit is made available to everyone. And this is the heart of Jesus for the people. I want you to hear me. This is the heart of Jesus for the people. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. There isn't like a caste system where you have some haves and you have some have-nots. You have the least and you have like the, the, the more important ones. There's nothing like that. There's either male nor female, slave or Greek or Scythian or barbarian. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord belongs in the family of God. And what does that mean? Well, the Spirit of God is made available to them. It's given um, access. People are given access to the very presence of God. Which, what you see then, you see the church in a matter of 30 years transform the Mediterranean world. You see the church, they, they begin to heal the sick. They take on, they carry on, in the words of one New Testament scholar, the transformed logic of Jesus, not because they were smart, not because they had the branding, not because they were necessarily advanced in technology. They carried the logic of Jesus, the gospel itself, to people, and people were being healed and transformed because of the Spirit of God in them. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to make an argument that it's not about being smart, it's about being Spirit-filled that's most important in the kingdom of God. Being spirit-filled is, I, I think, is built into the very Christian DNA. Many people, and I'm going to talk about this next week, many people reject this claim. But we believe that God is at work right now and today, and you have access to God's power and presence and spirit. 
but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That was how they preached the gospel. That was how they transformed the Mediterranean world. That's how they were able to overcome suffering. That's how they were able to truly be human and do what God had called them to do. Not because they were smart, not because they were talented, not because they, had, they were moral exemplars. We know Peter was not a moral exemplar. Can I get an amen to that? We know this is because they were filled with God's spirit. I read an article uh, this week, and uh, it was president. One of my friends sent it to me. I thought it was a powerful article. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but the president of Fuller University wrote this. I'm going to paraphrase some of his, his thoughts. I think the title of this little uh, article might have been like a little lecture. I'm not quite sure. It was The Crisis of American Evangelicalism. And in it, he said this. He pointed out that Christians, we'll, we'll speak specifically to Christians, Christians in general are in a crisis because of their failure to embody the gospel that they preach in his words. He continues, and this is kind of like my, my paraphrase, it is because Christians have become bankrupt in love. They're no longer healing. Uh, they're no longer exemplifying the goodness of Jesus outward to the world. Uh, he continued in his words, Christians generally are unable to deal or address the depth of fear and anxiety and disillusionment and hopelessness and injustice in our world. And he kind of outlined, kind of gave us a map of why he thinks that to be true. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this text in Acts chapter 2, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, you know what? I think the reason why Christians, if they feel this way, they feel like um, a failure in loving like God's called them to love, if they feel like they're not truly being who God's called them to be, if they feel like, man, their life is just like in a circle and they're just, they, they get victory and then they kind of become defeated again, they get more victory and they become defeated again. I think the reason is, I'm gonna talk more about this over the next few weeks, is because they're not filled with the Spirit. Now, there was a man, you know, he's not really well known, but uh, I want to quote him. You know, he struggled with popularity. His name was Billy Graham. He said this, okay? So I want to make sure you're awake. Bad joke. He said this, they're hungry. I think he wrote this kind of in this little biography. They're hungry for something, Christians that is. Their Christian experience is not at all what they expected, and they often have reoccurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus, I love this, not get smart, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like I make an argument all the time that our problem is not laissez-faire economics. Our problem is not powers that are stronger than the church. The problem is I think, this is just my thoughts, that there are a lot of Christians, because we got some bad teaching on the Holy Spirit, are not filled with God's empowering presence. We got Christians whose lives are not marked out by the power of God, and they, they suffer the consequences of not being with Jesus and experiencing his life. So, what, what's, our, what's our solution to this? Here's the good news. Ephesians chapter 5, 
uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. It begins in verse 14. I'm going to just read just a few verses. And he writes, for anything that becomes visible is light. And he's going to give us an answer to uh, our question, okay, how can we be filled? He goes, therefore, it says, awake. Everyone say, awake. He's talking to Christians. He goes, awake. How many of you like to sleep? Okay, I love to sleep. I love naps. Um, I love sleeping on the right side of the bed. I don't know why I say When you're on the right, you're on the right. Anyways, when I'm always on the left side, I get nightmares. Anyway, let's move on. All right. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. Right? When you sleep, you're not conscious. It's pretty self-evident, right? You're not aware of anything that's going on around you. Paul is intimating that we have Christians who are in Christ, and they're asleep. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. This is eschatological language. Paul's essentially saying, hey, day breaks here, guys. Sun's out. How many of you love the sun this week? It's 88 degrees. Come on. The birds are singing. Like Olaf, man, he's like doing his like summer, summer, right? We're having a great time. Daybreak has arrived. And I just feel like when Paul is writing this, it's almost like he's yelling this. Hey, guys, wake up. We're living in a new age. It's not the age of Kaiser um, Kyrios, Caesar Lord. This is not the age of the powers or the law. This is a new age of King Jesus being enthroned over the cosmos, and the Spirit is now being poured out throughout the world. And he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's possible for you to be in a worship service and lift your hands and not really be awake. It's possible some of you are sleeping, not literally, but as I'm talking right now, you're still asleep to the surprising possibilities of God's brand new world. Your mind is defined by self-interest. and Your life has been filled, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, been filled with stuff other than the very presence of God. And you don't even know that you're not aware of God's grace and goodness. I want us to be awake today. I want us to know that that we're living in a different age, people. We're living in a different time. This is not the age of of, of presidents and American liberal-style democracy. This is not the age of, like, technology and futurism or, again, modern Western progressivism. This is the age of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And when you start there, That's when you can move into all that God has for your life. And then Paul continues, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Note that time, that's eschatological, because the days are evil. The story of Jesus has come to a climactic moment. We are now in the age of the Spirit. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing, this is my, this is Pastor Ken's favorite, one of his favorite verses. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing is a good thing. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul, he says, okay, guys, you need to wake up. Okay, so it's a different age, it's a different time, it's a different era. God is doing something that we had been hoping for for uh, thousands of years. It has finally become true. And he gives a command. He says, now I want you to be filled with the Spirit. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. To be filled with the Spirit is issued uh, in the original language as a passive command. Everyone say passive. The passive command implies that you're not responsible to fill yourself up. Like usually when I think about my, like my spiritual life, like as I'm following Jesus, I usually think, okay, that ultimately I'm responsible to make things happen. Well, homie, don't play that, and Jesus don't play that. We're not responsible ultimately for filling ourselves up. The passive command suggests uh, not that we fill ourselves up, but that we open our lives to the reality of God's daily, I want you to say daily, daily presence in our lives. Open, I think Paul is essentially saying, open your lives. Get, get, get a large heart. Open your mind. You guys are, you're, you're thinking way too small. You're, you're fencing yourself in. You're living a small life and God's giving you the biggest life. Why are you living a small life? Like open yourself to the expansive, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, open your lives to the expansiveness of God's power and grace and presence in your life. Experience him. Take, take the roots of your life and go deep into the love that God has for you. Just simply, your job is not to fill yourself. Your job is to open your heart to the Holy Spirit. But see, here's the problem. The reason why we're not filled with the Holy Spirit is not because God doesn't want to fill us with his presence. It's usually because we're full of something else. Nature, just so you know, like some of you don't like this because it's science, but nature abhors a vacuum. In other words, there's really no such thing as, well, in space, yes, Scott will probably correct me after post hoc, after the service, but in our, in, in our world of time and matter, like if there's space, Nature wants to fill that space with something. So if you're not filled, in other words, with the Holy Spirit, you will be filled with something. Some of you today might be filled with jealousy. Some of you might be filled with greed. Some of you might be filled with self-interest. Some of you might be filled with yourself and you don't even know it and you're living a frustrated existence and you're asking God, why don't I have power? Why can't I truly live and embody the gospel like I see in Scripture? Is it because the Spirit has left us? Is it because we're living in a new dispensation and we just have to survive until Jesus makes all things new? No. I think it's because we've gotten some bad teaching. It's because we're filled with stuff other than the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do. Every single day, I just want you to open up your heart. I want you to open up your will. I want you to open up your emotions. It's a little bit scary, but I want you to hear me today. Open up your mind. Open up your life, your body, your, your checkbook. Come on. Open up everything that concerns you and bring it before God and present it to him and just give yourself to the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, 
Guess what happens? You, two things will happen. You'll realize that you've been filled with stuff other than the Holy Spirit. You'll see anger and lust and greed and uh, hypocrisy and hopelessness and anxiety come to the surface, but God always does that. When he's working in your life, he brings those things up to the surface so he can address it, so he can set you free, and then he'll begin to pour his grace and his life and his presence into your life. Be filled with the Spirit is a passive command, but it's also an ongoing, it's, it's cast in the ongoing present tense, which means, hey, and this, is, this might be a little kind of theological speak, don't worry about it, um, I'll talk more about this later, but as charismatics, we believe in a baptism, one baptism with many fillings. So many people, when, hey, when they, is this okay if I talk like this? Many people, when they make a decision to follow Jesus, they have this like big encounter with God and they think, or they assume, okay, that's it. And they kind of live their life based on one encounter with Jesus. What Paul is saying is, hey, being filled with the Spirit is not just a one-time, one-off event. Where you come up to the front, you make a decision to follow Jesus, you get a quiver in your liver, you do the Pentecostal two-step, you have this crazy experience, camp experience with God, and then it's over. Like some of you, you're living on an old experience, and well, God, in 1973, he, he came into my life and he changed me, and I'm like, well, has God moved in your life since then? No, I'm just trying to make it in my own power, right? That's not what the Christian life is supposed to be. It's, it's supposed to be an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. When I, I remember, I remember it as it was like 50 seconds ago. Uh, it was 11 years ago. I met my, my, at the time, Kelly wasn't my wife, but I wanted her to be my wife. And uh, we're going out on a date. And I remember I asked her if I could hold her hand. And I remember I took her hand and like, like this, it was magic. And I, I mean, it was like, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced holding my wife, not again, my wife, Kelly's hand for the very first time. Um, but I never thought, oh, okay, I'm good, right? I'm never like, I, I, never, I never wanna hold your hand again. That was amazing, babe. <laughs> but when we get married, I never wanna hold your hand again. Like, I really don't wanna get to know you, so when we get married, maybe I'll kiss you on our wedding day, but then you gotta live on the other side of the house, right? I'll live on the other side. We're just not gonna have any relationship, right? We're not gonna grow in our intimacy. It's funny how a lot of Christians just assume that's what, following Jesus is about. Like you have one powerful moment and that's it. And they, and they just wonder why they're empty. They wonder why they're, they, they don't have the resources to, to deal with vulnerability and suffering. Why, why they don't have the courage to listen to the voice of God and step out in faith and talk to that person in the grocery store about the story of Jesus? We're not called to live in fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So be filled. How many times have you been filled with the Holy Spirit, Chris? Um, uh, probably 25,000 times. That's just a random number. I, I believe in constant filling of the Holy Spirit in my life. Every single day as I open up my heart, Jesus, God will fill us with his grace. So, interesting passage. 
we find in Ephesians chapter 1, as you're being filled with the Holy Spirit, something will happen. You'll be filled with God's power. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul, again, is writing to uh, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus in this ancient world was a, was a center of cultural, social, political power. And Paul plays off, actually one of the more uh, dominant themes in the book of, of Ephesians is power. And he writes in verse 15 as a prayer. He goes, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then he continues, he starts talking about the church, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I love this. Did you, did you notice something? It's, it feels ridiculous, or it reads ridiculous. What Paul is saying, hey guys, the power of God that raised Jesus bodily back from the dead, is there, any, is, is there a greater power than that? Paul would say, no. The power that you see in the resurrection of Jesus upstages all other claims on power. Have you raised somebody back from the dead? Right, this is powerful stuff. Can I get an amen to that? What Paul is linking up is that power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to you. So we're taking like the power of Easter. I mean, this is like taking death and collapsing it back on itself and doing some science stuff on science and creation. And that power is now made available to you in your life to be who God's called you to be. This is not a coercive power. We're not talking about getting power so we can create a theocracy. Can I get an amen to that? We're not talking about using power for our own self-interest, colluding with um, the power of politics. No, this is a power to fully and truly be alive and be who God's called us to be, to love and to serve and to live and to believe and to preach the good news to this world. That's the power that God has given us. And then he says in another prayer, in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he continued in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. They missed, okay, that according to the riches of his glory, they may grant to you, be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ, will read it again, that may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then I love this. Now to him, like this is, this is like, man, takes us to another level of thinking. 
This requires us to be big frame thinkers, not small frame thinkers. He goes, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, Jesus was filled, was full of the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4. Peter was full of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, 120 disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with his power. So how do we, Chris, how do we acquire this power? Not to use as a conjuring trick, not as an illusionist, not to get people to do whatever we want, but to love and to preach the good, the good news of Jesus and to be who God's called us to be. How do we acquire this power? How do we enter into, in other words, what only God can do for us? Well, I think you have to grow in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Last two years, my life has been changed. Many of you, you might not know this, I think many of you do, that I'm a type 1 diabetic. And over the last two years, I've made a commitment to get really healthy. And um, this last month, I have not been more healthy than I have in like two and a half, three years. I want to thank you for your prayers. I want to thank you for your support. Many of you have supported me, and you've been so good when I haven't been feeling well. Uh, but over the last two and a half years, I, I, I made a decision to go to uh, Jack City Fitness. It's um, Marshall Weber. If you don't know him, he goes to, comes to first service. He runs Jack City Fitness. And I made a decision. I met him two and a half years ago to get back into shape. And so if you don't know him, he's a genetic freak. Like he can squat like 5,000 pounds. I don't know if that's possible, Right. He's, uh, he should be an Olympian. I mean, the guy is um, a genetic monster. And uh, it's pretty amazing what he can do. Um, but Marshall, Marshall, what I, I quickly realized as I was just working out with my friend Marshall, that the more time I spent with him, the stronger that I got. Like, I didn't have to worry about power and strength. I just had to partner or be in relationship or get to know Marshall. And Marshall, in the context of partnering with him, helped me get stronger. I think the same thing is true with us as Christians. The more we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, the more we grow in his power. The closer, in other words, we get to Jesus and his spirit, the more power we experience in our life, being with Jesus, following the way of Jesus, and taking a risk, in the words of one pastor, it's kind of a little formula, equals entering into the power that God has made available to us all. I want this to be challenging. I want you to experience the power of God this week. How do we do it? Well, we, we spend time with Jesus every single day. We sing. Get in your car, sing. Don't worry about what people are looking at you. Go to the gym, just sing. Don't worry about it, right? In the morning, wake up. Just open up your Bible. Start reading. 
Maybe take a word that you've been thinking about for a long time and just study it out. Um, give, give your heart to being with Jesus every single day. For some of you, that might be 10 minutes. For some of you, that might be 15 minutes. For some of you, that might maybe mean 45 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe even longer. We're all in different seasons. But if we can make a commitment to grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, that's, that's the key here. The closer we get to Jesus, the more power we receive from him to truly be who God's called us to be. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.